Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 33, Calypso. To review the book, I'm joined by two small islands off the coast of Liverpool, Mr. Morgan, only accessible at low tide brown. Hello there. And Mr. Stephen, mainly seagull dung Royston. Hello. <laughs> Sorry about that, Steve-o. My name's Paul Abbott, and I'm finding it increasingly difficult to come up with new jokes for this opening section. <laughs> well, doing very well so far. Yeah, I was really clutching at straws to get something <laughs> for this one. Anyway, folks, if you want to contribute to discussions, find out about the show, or donate to us, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Coffee with the username Hark87Podcast on everything, or email us at Hark87Podcast at gmail.com. We actually received an email recently, which Oof. is a, a rarity, oh. from a chap called Peter Enventino, and he's one of the guys who's behind what was a fanzine in print, I think, and then became an e-zine and like a blog website thing called Bare Bones, mm-hmm. which is like a collector's thing for horror and pulp and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he got in touch with us. He's a massive McBain fan, and so it was really nice to hear from him. And uh, one thing I'll say, if folks want to look up the Bare Bones e-zine, there's a collector's guide to the 87th Precinct editions on there, which is a really useful help me look when I was sort of getting all that information together for our our research. So hello to Peter and thank you for getting in touch. Indeed. Although I believe he's starting at the start of listening to our podcast. <laughs> so he probably won't get this message for <laughs> depending on how fast he listens to them for ages. <laughs> go, diff- go back and revise one of the earlier episodes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, more importantly, hello chaps. We're back we for are. the next book. Finally. We made it. Yeah. And we've come up to 1979, Oof. no less. We've skipped a year since the last book. 1978 was a precinctless year. Great. Two people were too busy uh, being overawed by my birth <laughs> <laughs> in 1978. So let's do our usual stuff. I'll have a little bit of a look at some things from 1979 to kick off with, and then we'll get into some details about what McBain was up to, background to the book, and then we'll get stuck into it. In terms of 1979, though, what I thought was I'd show you two guys and you can reveal to the listeners mm-hmm. uh, the front cover of the New York Times for the day this was copyright registered, which was the 17th of May, 1979, and the Daily Telegraph, a British paper, which is horrible. But there were two front covers, so do you know what? You can pick one at random and you can tell us what the stories were on the front cover of these papers. What have you got, steve I've got the New York Times. Okay, then. Oh, What's I... going on in the New York Times? Oh, well, Carter is optimistic about gas supply. That's nice, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, I just need a very small writing, actually. Yeah, What's newspapers in those days were very dense. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of stories crammed in, aren't there? Yeah. Any highlights from the Telegraph leaping out for you uh, there, Morgan? The Daily Telegraph, let's have a look. I guess the the biggest headline Tory team supports Muzorewa. How am I saying that? <laughs> I don't even know how I'm saying that. I thought it said Alaskan lands bills saving vast areas. I thought it said approved by horse, but uh, <laughs> it, it's it's house, of course. 
Morgan is struggling as an old man with his eyesight to read this tiny trying newspaper Trying to find uh, the, 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 the correct sort of distance to hold it to actually make anything out. Not doing very well They're here. quite political, these front pages, They, they are, they? definitely. I think um, in the UK, of course, 1979 is the year that Margaret Thatcher she, she, comes She'd power. have just arrived in power a, a mere couple of weeks before this, wouldn't she? Yeah, yeah so she, she's so. Uh, featuring quite heavily on here. Mrs Thatcher wins praise from Ben. Um, Mr. Wedgwood that's Ben. That's Gentle Ben, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the Florida bear. <laughs> that's correct, yeah, that, that's that's the one. Well, 1980 was the year that Zimbabwe became independent and both these headlines are about some mm. potential government led by this Mazoria, which obviously never panned out. But, oh, yeah. uh, Tests show Soviet drinks trap. That sounds exciting. Oh, oh, yeah, that does sound exciting, that. Well, it was an experiment. I was hoping when I looked these pages up that they would have some explosive headlines mm. um, and they're not. So the day-to-day business of news reporting is pretty dry in 1979. It is a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, Even if it is all about uh, political changes, Soviets, the uh, independence of African nations. That being as it is, I think we've just touched on the idea that uh, Callaghan leaves office in the UK and Margaret Thatcher becomes the Prime Minister. Who we basically grew up in the shadow of. <laughs> and in the United States, it's Jimmy Carter's Lane Power. Indeed. The UK gets into the winter of discontent in 1979, and there's strikes happening all the time, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Brezhnev turns out for Tito. That's caught my eye. Oh, yeah. He died the following year. Well, Tito did. Uh, Cold stuff. War stuff, basically, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Entente and, uh, or détente or whatever yeah. it is. Not entente. <laughs> détente and yes. Cold War. Entente, détente. Entente, Cold War. Um, <laughs> what else happened in 1979? I've only got two or three little things in here. Anything leap into your minds other than your two births? Minor. Well, minor details, yeah. Ooh, what, what did you do? Oh, I don't know. Uh, There's a big punk story, of course, in 1979. Did What's-his-name die? What's his name? Uh, Old Sid. Sid Vicious. Yeah, Sid Vicious. Simon John Ritchie. In uh, in February. It was ruled by suicide, I think, wasn't it? That... Yeah, by deliberate heroin overdose yeah. while um, awaiting trial for the murder of Nancy. There was a lot of fun in America when Three Mile Island went into meltdown. Oh, yeah. So that huge nuclear disaster in uh, mainland USA. Mm. Just a bit terrifying. Somewhat. And also in March of 1979, the CD was demonstrated to the public for the first Ooh. time. Well, they did that. Didn't they put a, some Beethoven on it or something? Well, that determines the length. I yeah. remember somebody... Uh... Well, the length of the CD didn't necessarily have to be ostensibly 79, 80 minutes uh-huh. or 74 minutes or whatever yeah. it is. But I think it was... And I'm assuming this isn't a myth. It was the length of one whole piece of Beethoven. Yeah, and it was used as an arbitrary could, sort yeah. of thing of we'll make it that length. Yeah. Because digital music had been in development since the 60s, essentially. I better not get onto this because this is slightly <laughs> in my field of... Get an hour under- out of this. Yeah, well, I probably could. <laughs> well, if you want to listen to anything like that, there's a podcast called 20,000 Hertz, which is amazing. Oh. Although I don't think they've done anything about the history of digital music. But basically, a yeah, CD comes out and they start showing it off to the public in 1979. Put it on Tomorrow's World with people stamping on it to show that it still plays. Because, of course, it's impossible to scratch CDs. Yeah. As they kept telling us. Impossible to scratch. They'd play no matter what you do. I, I'm convinced, 
and maybe someone can confirm or deny this, one of our listeners who might be into archive TV. I'm convinced I saw a Tomorrow's World where someone was literally smearing jam on a CD. I, I feel certain that, oh, peanut butter, something like yeah, that, Yeah, and, and it was still being shown it could play with all that on it. Yeah, it was total nonsense, clearly. <laughs> yeah. You just have to look at a CD and it will stop working. Yeah. So somewhere in, in 1979 in England, probably, Mark Knopfler was thinking... I better get my skates on because in about six years I'm going to have to gonna write have to... a big mega selling uh, album yeah. that we can stick out on CD. Uh, yeah. So, Lots you know. of music execs rubbing their greedy little mitts together thinking about yeah. how they can, can pretend to everyone that they're getting better quality from this format that just costs pennies to make. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Well, it was a huge, it was probably the consumer item of the 80s, Absolutely, wasn't it? I suppose yeah. even more so than the home computer because it didn't really become. Universal until the nineties, mm. I wouldn't have thought, but and then it became just everywhere. Universal mm-hmm. stuff. Although I didn't get my first CD player until the early nineties, mid mid early nineties. Yeah, I, think, I would think, say late nineties. I think I was at university. I think um, my mum won one in a competition, so we got that. But uh, I had about two CDs for the first four years. I think the first CD I got was um, the Beatles Live at the BBC on CD. Oh, cool! And then uh, Feeling Good, the Nina Simone collection. So you can really get them strong very, start. You can really get them very cheap, could you? So it it was quite difficult, really. They were they were expensive, and a lot of the first ones also came with a little warning saying, "Oh, may contain loads and loads of tape hiss." Like, oh, great! Yeah, fantastic. And quite a lot of those early ones, like the packaging, was really dreadful. Naff. Yeah. yeah. Just like really no effort, one bit of folded paper. Yeah, badly shrunken down LP sleeve and now else. Yeah. Whereas if you got a cassette, you'd have the... The exciting fold-out. Yeah. yeah. But, so, yeah. <laughs> that's CDs for you. Mm. Dominated, eventually. Uh, moving on from that, we've got um, the Iran hostage crisis in November. Oh, yeah. All right, so that's yeah. a lot of fun for yeah. absolutely nobody, I don't it's, think. It's all great no. news, isn't it? Yeah. Crikey. And I've not really got much else on 1979. Well, that was the uh, the Iranian Revolution as well. Yeah. As well as the uh, which the Iran hostage crisis was part of. Indeed. Some interesting books pop out in... Uh, pop out? Books pop out? Like out of a toaster? <laughs> pop out books. Pop, pop, up, pop out pop, books. Pop, pop up books. Pop out books. I've just selected some, <laughs> some literature that came out in 1979, such as the book version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Terrific. Absolutely wonderful book, meant a lot to me, still does. Uh-huh. Overload by Arthur Haley. Now, I mention this only because this is a book I read when I was much too young to be reading it. Because my dad used to read, still does, I think, to some extent, I think, uh, like thrillers, yeah. airport thrillers. He used to love Wilbur Smith. I think he's now more on historical things. Hmm. You know, your hornblowers and your... Oh, I... Your Who is your dad or yeah. Wilbur Smith? <laughs> well, I don't know what Wilbur Smith gets up to. Books with elephants on the front. Mainly. <laughs> but o- o- Arthur Haley was one of these writers, and Overload was something about an energy s- crisis of mm. some sort. Ooh, but sex. it had loads of sex scenes in it, Oof. Mm. including the one where the, the protagonist has sex with a quadriplegic woman. And it's good Lord. like he makes her feel in ways she's never felt for uh. her. It's like, oh, good Lord. I'm like 11 years old reading this. It was a strange education. Yes. But a couple of other books, Smiley's People... By John Le Carre. Fantastic. Imagine the, imagine the pop-out version of that. <laughs> that would be great. Big George bowl, Smiley. Big bowler hat firing out on your page 32. Yeah. Oliver Lacon. 
and The Ghostwriter by Philip Roth, which I've never read. Read it, Morgan? I, 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 do you know, I've, I've got it on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. No, it was then. We don't know anything about that one then. But a very important piece of literature comes out in 1979, towards the end of the year, and that is the first issue of Viz magazine. <laughs> which, to people who don't know it, which will be, basically be anyone else who's not in England, or, or the UK rather, is one of the silliest, funniest, dirtiest, mm-hmm. rudest comics which, as a kid, I found absolutely disgusting and didn't understand. And now I absolutely love to pieces. It's, it's filthy, but it's great. Good old Viz. So, let's move on. Should we move on to McBain? Why not? Ah, I suppose what, what, could, what, what, what's he up to? Well, like I say, we've skipped 1978 because he didn't release an 87th Precinct oh. book then. So I've got, I'll catch us up with what he's done up to now. I assume he wasn't just snoozing. No, sir. Although he's not putting out anywhere near as many short stories as he was 10, 20 years before this. Understandably, he doesn't have to. He's getting paid a lot more money for his actual books. So in uh, July of 1978, he puts out, or rather Playboy in Germany, release SOS Killer and Board. I think you can translate that without too much effort. No, no, it's gone right over my head. (laughs) That was uh, credited to Evan Hunter. Also in July 1978, Goldilocks comes out in oh. short story form yeah. in Cosmopolitan in the UK. So that's promotional stuff for Matthew Hope, basically. Calypso obviously comes out in 1979, we're going to talk about. As does the book Walk Proud, which is an Evan Hunter book about gangs, which is also made into a film, which gang, I've never seen. Gangs again. Gangs, gangs, gangs. does enjoy a good gang. What if he's in a gang? Well... This is gangs over in uh, on the West Coast, I believe, rather than the East West Coast. Coast so different. In terms of... Different coast, I suppose. Yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> Not inland. Never inland. <laughs> the sea's on a different side. He's saving up those Midwestern gangs for another day. Mountain gangs. Oof. Well, I'm, I'm joking there about him only ever writing coastal stuff. But actually, I think in the next couple of years, we'll be talking about... The Chisholms, which is pioneer stuff, which is crossing the country. So that's different. Anyway, Going not... from one coast to another. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Two coasts, <laughs> not no coasts. Anyway, things in cinemas and Gang. TV. There was the film of Blood Relatives came out in 1978. Have you watched it yet, Stephen? No, I haven't. I found it on my uh, coffee table only yesterday. Oh, right. And I thought, what's this? And I thought, yes. So that's... So that, and I put it back. <laughs> we talked about that in the episode about Blood Relatives. That came out in 1978. And also in 1978, the film uh, Dongala Veta came out in the Telugu language, which is the Telugu language version of Inkar, which is the film that's based on <laughs> on High and Low, which is the film that's based on the book King's Ransom. I wonder if it bears any resemblance at all to King's Ransom at this stage. No, I suspect it's... It probably bears a passing resemblance to Inkar, almost nothing to high and low. And I should imagine that the guys who made it probably never, ever heard of uh, Ed McBain and King's Ransom. But there you go. I can't find anything about that. I think I've seen the trailer, possibly. It sounds fascinating. It's only two and a bit hours long, which is probably quite short, actually, for a a Tollywood film, as it would be, in the Telugu language. (laughs) Anything to add for 1979, then? No. No, let's move on to the book then. And I think we definitely should give a spoiler warning for this book because we're not going to be able to talk about this book at all if we don't talk about plot points, storylines, characters and the outcome of the story. Yeah. So if you haven't read Calypso, stop the pod- the podcast. Stop the podcast. 
Stop the podcast and go read it yeah. or carry on listening at your own risk. Yes. Pause now. Unpause. Yes. So, Calypso, one important thing is it is the first book in a new run of books by a new publisher. Oh. So, it first came out by Viking Press. They put out the hardback edition. It's the first of three books that are done by Viking Press, which I believe was owned by Penguin. And I found out something interesting about this. I've, I've made a bit of a, a join-the-dots sort of thing going on here because it looks to me like this deal that they had with Evan Hunter for these next three books, and I'm not sure if any of his own stuff, other own name stuff came out in Viking Press. I can check that later. I can't prove this, but it's, I think it's too much of a coincidence. It looks like they asked him to review other Viking Press books for them in the mm. newspapers because presumably getting Evan Hunter to review you a book by one of your other authors is quite a big thing, especially if it's in the New yeah. York Times or whatever. Because when I was looking stuff up about the Viking Press and McBain slash Hunter, it was like, oh, this he's reviewing books for the New York Times now, but only yeah. three books. So it's like he's gone, I'll do one review per <laughs> book of mine you put out. And he reviewed a book called Point Four Four by Breslin and Shap, which was a fictionalised account of the Son of Sam killings. Oh, right. He didn't like it. So, <laughs> so, so no, no good pull-out quote for the back cover of that, then? No. Why didn't he like it? Sounds quite good, that. I thought he was going to review a, a Newgate Calendar's debut novel. <laughs> <laughs> he wishes. However, hold that thought. Uh-oh. Uh. He reviewed a book called Made in America by Peter Mars, the guy who wrote Serpico. Oh, yeah. In which he says, quote, and this is Hunter saying, Evan Hunter saying this, remember, quote, Women are notoriously difficult to write about. It's just definitely something that has been levelled at him many times. Notoriously. Yeah. As in, I find them difficult to write about. But he did like that book anyway, Made in America. It's widely known that everyone finds women difficult to write about. It's not just me, everyone. Yeah. What? If you're not talking about the swell of their bosoms, what are you going to talk about? And he also reviewed Other People by Martin Amis. Oh, yeah. Which I've never read. Have you read it? I have. I can't remember much about it now. Well, let me quote from the opening of, of Evan Hunter's review I'm of sure it. I'll come flooding back. I do not appreciate an obscure novel. The only clear signal a book transmits to me is that a writer was either too lazy or too cowardly to reveal completely his mind or heart. There we go. He mm. didn't like that book by Martin Amis. I don't recall it being one of his best, to be honest. As you read his review, it sounds like he's taken a few lessons from Newgate Calendar. He really lays <laughs> into it, essentially. So mm. He definitely didn't like it. And that might explain possibly why Viking Press only put out three of his books, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like too much of a coincidence that he's reviewing Viking Press books whilst they're putting out his own books anyway. So there you go. And then other than that... Still in Hamish, Hamilton and Pan in the UK and in Bantam in the US for paperback. And it is dedicated to Jay and Connie Cronley. Connie Cronley? Connie Cronley, which is not a name you would necessarily know unless you read Horse Racing Journalism in America. And who doesn't, to be fair? And, to be honest, several other books and films. So Jay, Jay Cronley was a, a columnist and writer. He wrote several humorous books. So the internet tells me, which were turned into horse racing. Is he Some American of them Dick Francis. A bit funnier, I think, than Dick Francis. <laughs> Let it ride, which I think was made in, made into a film let with it. Richard Dreyfus. 
Right. Quick Change, which I think was made into a film with Bill Murray. Gosh. Funny Farm. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, that sound, sound great, these books. Yeah, well, this oh. chap died in 2017. Horseplay. I bet that was one of his, wasn't it? Quite possibly. <laughs> um, Connie Cronley was his wife. They divorced, but she was also she also is a writer and journalist. Hmm. She's alive, alive still, both based in Tulsa. But I kept finding, when I'd searched for Jay Cronley and, and Ed McBain... He loved Ed McBain, and they were. It seems like they were good mates, at least correspondence-wise, because yeah. McBain's files, archives, full of like, we've got letters from 1975 to 80 between these guys, and 1983 to 1987. So this is from Jay Cronley. He says, first you read. Reading everything Evan Hunter and Donald E. Westlake have written mm-hmm. is the equivalent of a master's in literature. Evan Hunter also wrote as Ed McBain. Both are dead, unfortunately, but their words are haunting in a great way. And he also said, this is good. Evan Hunter also wrote as Ed McBain and invented the form for all good stylistic cop shows on TV. Reading Evan Hunter dialogue is exactly like eavesdropping on whomever. It's that good. <laughs> so, I'm happy with that. Yeah, mm. it sounds like a good egg. Yeah, Bon Earth. So let's get stuck into Calypso and initial thoughts. Is this one of your first time reads, Morgan? Yes, oh. yes it was, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Well, perhaps you could uh, give me a... A brief reaction thing. How did you feel on reading this? Um, I mean, like any of these, it's 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 always going to be enjoyable. It's a it's a, a great page turner. It's a bit of an odd one. It takes a bit of a sort of. It's kind of like uh, he's taking the sort of form of a standard eight to seven precinct novel and taking a bit of a dive into some kind of 19th century kind of gothic tradition in a way. It's it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I never thought of it in those terms. That could be, yeah. It's, it's essentially ends as a horror movie, mm. doesn't it? So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a story. bit... Um, does feel like, although it's got a contemporary kind of urban setting, it, it could just as easily be windswept Plains Victoriana kind of, um, yeah, spooky kind of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But nastier. Well, definitely uh, nastier. The, the, the nastiness has been updated for the times, hasn't it? But, <laughs> yeah. uh, what about yeah. you, Steve? Yeah. Coming back to it. Yeah, it's it's one that I'd kind of remembered because it, it is quite memorable i suppose oh yeah and like yeah it's as bizarre as the cover really they got this weird <laughs> dog which we'll talk about later but uh yeah quite a quite an odd book really yeah i think it's uh, one of the first ones i read once i started collecting uh, after yeah. the first couple i got out of because I, I seem to remember having this having had this for a long time and it being quite an early one i read and going right blimey that's not the same as the mugger or Copator or whatever. Yeah. And yet it is, of course, because it's the 87 Precinct. Yeah, it's just a little bit different, really. It's mm. a bit uh, kind of exploring the seedier side of some other city, I suppose, isn't it? Not it, where quite a few of them do that, I suppose. And then it's got this deranged... Yeah, so it's a, it's a tale of a psycho, maniac. essentially. Mm. Um, we've done our spoiler warning. But it's called Calypso, which is... I find absolutely fascinating. I, now, there's something there's a basic thing I find really, really fascinating about this is is that it's about calypso and it, we're talking about calypso music, which is a form of protest music. It amazes me. In 1979 in New York, he chose to write about a form of protest music, and it wasn't punk. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an odd one, isn't it? Yeah, 
And I'm, you know, I assume, well, I know that Calypso is a is a political music, yeah, absolutely, very yeah. much so. I don't know how big its influence was in New York, but it must have been pretty <clears throat> significant for him to pick on this as a as an idea. Yeah, especially if you think about possible other influences on it as well. I think there was definitely still some significant stuff happening in the genre at that time. Although I think it's sort of it's heyday in sort of the broader kind of public consciousness had maybe kind of like been and gone by that point. Yeah, and I think it was more Calypso definitely was more relevant back where it came from in Trinidad and Tobago than anywhere else. Yeah, well, possibly except for say in the UK because of the immigration hmm. patterns and things yeah. like that and colonial aspects i guess so yeah i'm sure there were trinidadian communities in in new york and everything so oh, there would definitely yeah. been a, a, a still a, a good audience for it there but uh yeah it's an interesting interesting choice definitely so what do we know about calypso music um, other than what i've just said it comes from trinidad and tobago it's political absolutely nothing so i'm, I'm all ears yeah uh it's not the same as reggae it's not it's but it's an island music with that usually has a political message. Yeah, as you say, roots in kind of in in kind of colonial times, isn't it? I mean, possibly developed from sort of out of like work songs, it quite melodically repetitive. But then it's like it, I think it came from satirical lyrics, kind of either just satirizing kind of general kind of working conditions originally, and then kind of uh, as it's gone on, it's been branched out to sort of a much broader subject matter and then eventually sort of popularised and brought into the mainstream by the likes of Harry Belafonte and, and yeah. what have you. Right. Well, I know the uh, the Spanish didn't allow the plantation workers to talk, so mm. they used to, like, sing instead of talking. So yeah. Trinidad and Tobago, uh, well, Trinidad certainly was a Spanish colony. Yeah. And so, yeah, probably came out of that. And so the 20th century and as it continues now it's they had a thing called these calypso competitions the where they elect the calypso mm. monarch yeah used to be calypso king but then w- women started winning it so it became calypso yeah. monarch basically and calypso rose wasn't it who yeah, uh, bro- bro- broke the uh, the uh, gender barrier is that so, why this bloke's called king jo- is he called king george yeah so the the, mm. the first victim in this book is a musician called king george who's a calypso musician and i was thinking well how realistic are those names and certainly the first time I read this, I didn't know about many of these names. There's some great names. Well, I've got a few names here from actual Trinidadian and Tobagan and um, Calypso people, such as the Mighty Explainer, oh. the Mighty Chalk Dust. The Chalk Dust stuff I've listened mm. to is really good. The Mighty Stalin. Yeah, I saw that. Which is an amazing name to yep. choose as your musical name. Lord Valentino, El Maestro, Calypso Rose... We've got Lord Shorty, Black Starlin and Crow Crow, Sparrow and Dr. Williams. They're all names like that. Yeah, Lord Kitchener, wasn't there? I Lord think, Kitchener, well, which yeah. is yeah, <laughs> a colonial thing, obviously. So they all have names like that. And actually, having read a little bit about political Calypso, the stuff in the McBain book, he's done his research. Oh, yeah. And the quoted lyrics in this scene... Because I always find lyrics made up by authors sometimes don't ring true. They, they can be terrible, can't they? It can take you right out of a, a, a novel as well, I think, when you get that. But um, but actually, it turns out that the ones in, that he's invented in his in his book, they're not bad. They're the, pretty the, realistic to... Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it's he's done. he's not done badly no. in this one at all. 
He obviously does some other books with music in that I don't think he does quite as well. We'll, with. we'll enjoy discussing those when we'll we come around to, to him. Um, yeah, it's possibly a more accurate representation of uh, true Calypso than um, Robert Mitchum's Calypso album, which I discovered while looking into Calypso what? music. Robert Mitchum's Calypso album. Yes, that's correct. Rob, when did Robert Mitchum do a cal- why did Robert Mitchum do a Calypso album? I've forgotten what year it was. I should have looked at, looked this up, really. I just, just found it in passing last night, and I thought I'd, I had to mention it. It's called something like Calypso is Just So, or something like that. Uh, I, I, I think it's quite well regarded. That's all of this information. I'll, is try, I'll try and find it. Uh... It's bizarre and fascinating to me. I, I thought... wonder well, no, how political this was. I thought I must be losing... 1957. All oh, right, so that would be well. Harry Belafonte would have been quite big then, wouldn't he? As well? Yeah, I think it was the the kind of the height of, of popular... Calypso, just kind of filtering into the mainstream. Calypso a is bit. like so. Is like so. That's the one. Yeah. But Mitchum did a Calypso. Album. He sure did. I... <laughs> I I'd listened to a couple of songs uh, uh, the other day. Steve was showing me the front cover. That's yeah. Okay. He, he he does attempt an accent occasionally. Oh, it's probably Robert. not the best choice. Well, there we go. I've learnt something I didn't expect, expect to learn there at all. Anyway, let's get back to the book, really, and Calypso. Another influence, possibly, on the name, and I got the hint from this from Erin MacDonald's book about the companion to Ed McBain and Evan Hunter, about the Greek myth. Mm. Odysseus and Calypso, the nymph Calypso, which I must have known about because I used to be obsessed with Greek well, myths yeah, when I was me little. Too. So um, were you going to have a little look into that yeah, one? What's, the, what's the, the deal with that? Yeah, once you mentioned it, it's like, oh, yes, this is very clearly... Um, it's one of those McBain titles which, where the title equally refers to two things. Mm. So Calypso was... Um, a, a nymph who lived on the island of um, Ogygia, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which I I'll may not it. be. Um, That's what the book's about! Yeah, well, quite. <laughs> um, so uh, she uh, basically wanted to keep Odysseus as her immortal husband, so she detained him for seven years, lured him in with her uh, singing whilst uh, weaving on her loom with a golden shuttle. Oh, that'll do um, it. It will. I mean, if... We've just friendly. given the entire plot of the book away. Essentially, essentially the, 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 exactly what happens. Yeah, that, that, particularly the loom. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she um, yeah, lulls him in. Um, and obviously, he's, at first, he's quite happy to be lured. And then, as time goes on, not quite so happy yeah. as you would be. And he eventually appeals to his patron goddess, Athena. Uh, who uh, gets onto Zeus and, yeah. and just gives him a little gives, out, it up the line, g- gives him a little little nudge and 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 he sends he stops uh, himself from turning into a swan and having it off with someone for, for once for, a bit. for once he stops himself doing that sends Hermes down to uh, to sort it out and Calypso has a little bit of a a, a fit but uh, not quite so much as uh, yeah, certain just, characters he gets away, doesn't he he does indeed and eventually uh, Calypso. Um, Provides him with materials to to make a raft, and and he, he does actually get away from Agigia, uh lucky old Odysseus, yeah. uh, to get back to Penelope. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, Calypso apparently from um, uh, Calypto, meaning to to cover, to hide, or deceive. Well, that's relevant. It is, and she's also often depicted with flowing blonde hair. Mm. That is also relevant. 
So there we go. So we've got the influences. So he's got Calypso music on one hand. He's got the Calypso myth on the other. And he's got the 87th Precinct to tell a story about it in. Indeed. He must have just read that and thought, right, Calypso music and that's the plot. You don't know how much of that. It might have have just literally been coincidence that those two things popped into his mind or he was exposed to them at the same time. Hmm. You don't know, do you? Yeah. Um, Perhaps he was listening to Robert Mitchum and he thought... uh, (laughs) Two completely different derivations of words. How can I combine these two improbable things? Mm. Yeah. But basically the death of this Calypso singer in paragraph one of, of, of the book is what triggers the police investigation. His manager's also shot, but not killed at that point. And we get stuck into it. And one thing I thought very interesting in chapter one, the first proper appearance in this book of computer technology. So you have all the explanation of how the police reporting when a call comes in and all that stuff happens in quite some detail. Yeah, it goes on for ages, that. But it's interesting because it's the first big bit of technology change that's happened for a little while, really. Yeah, you kind of explain how they end up... Normally you start with them standing on a sidewalk in the rain, staring at a corpse, but you've got a good half a chapter explaining what happens to make that that happen. I like the way it's obviously the computer technology is new and maybe he'd been and talked to his police friends or been into a a, a dispatch centre and and had a look at it because he's sort of saying presses a button, which, because now if we talk about computers, we take it for red that you're pressing buttons, yeah. clicking mice, all that sort of stuff. It's like, we'll press a button labelled this, we'll do that, and it's... Press the enter button, I remember him. Yeah. So we have end up with Corella and Meyer and Monaghan and Monroe at the scene of this this murder of this Calypso Sh- musician. Shooting. So where do you go from there? You have to start investigating. You do. Indeed. They go, what do, uh, do they go and see his wife first, first up? Yeah. But uh, they find out his brother... They're, they're clutching at straws straight from the the beginning, aren't they? Uh, Looking for a motive. Yeah. And they talk to his wife, get his diary, a bit of info about him, learn she's a, a, an erotic dancer, and discover that his brother went missing seven years ago. And that's the only thing they can think of that's a mystery attached to him. Yeah. Other than these names they have to work out in his diary and stuff. Yeah, like they're that. just trying to find something out of the ordinary with him and the, the, they've got absolutely nothing to go on but the fact that his br- brother went missing and then later in the book they realised that he was getting he was a bit obsessed with the disappearance with his brother wasn't he yeah and so they think that's yeah. maybe something to and investigate yeah. and they have some other leads around the potential leads around the, the night of the disappearance of his brother because it's also surrounding the, the breakup of his band, isn't it? As yeah. we discover as we go along. Yeah, they go and visit the two bandmates and get totally <laughs> d- different stories about the same event, both yeah. of which have elements of truth, some as, as somebody threads. would misremember something from seven years ago, I suppose. But um... Well, he makes a good reference to Rashomon, which is obviously an Akira Kurosawa film, which... It's nice in a, to have that in a McBain book, given how, how good High and Low mm. is as an adaptation of King's Ransom. And we do know that McBain thought that was the best 87th Precinct adaptation, or certainly was very good anyway, mm. as, a, as a crime film. And Rashomon's become a, a byword anyway for multiple versions of the same event. Mm. So good reference there, I like and that. Yeah, yeah. And then shortly after that, there is another 
killing, isn't there? There that, is. But it happens reasonably early in the book, doesn't it? Yes. By chapter four, we have a dead prostitute in a different part of the city. They subsequently find out was killed by the same gun, but not, yeah. not instantaneously. They don't know that, do they? And this is a Corella book again, isn't it, essentially? Right. Maya's there as backup for the yeah. most part, but it's Corella's takes takes the lead in all of this. He does. In this run of books we're on at the moment, I think the, the, the other detectives are very hidden away, really, aren't they? They are, yeah. Yeah, because if you think for a good run of the earlier ones... Mixes it up a bit. Yeah, yeah. properly shared out, but he seems to have gone back to... Doing lots of. I think cotton hose has just more or less vanished totally yeah, off the map. Yeah. Has for for the for the time being, yeah. Because there's a couple of scenes in this set in the squad room, both of which involve Maya telling a joke that Kling finds so funny he almost wets himself, <laughs> and also that we find that Richard Gennaro has no sense of humour. Mm. His favourite joke is the one about a monkey humping a football. <laughs> I'm trying to reverse engineer that joke, but I, you know, I don't want to. Look it up online. No. <laughs> See what it is. There was one line in here that was absolutely proper laughing me head off uh, when I was reading it yesterday. I'll try and find it. Okay. It's when they're interviewing the uh, the, the the guy who um, is manager. Um, oh, Ambrose Harding. Yeah. yeah. I'll find, it's not till later in the book anyway, so I'll try oh, and well, find it. You keep your eye open for that. So we've got two corpses in different parts of the city. Forbes and Phelps, homicide. Mm. Detectives for a different part of the city. They featured before. They have. Yeah, they are, they're looking at the the death of the the hooker, the prostitute. There's a, a section where Corella goes and speaks to the dead man's wife at her place of work, where she is essentially taking all her clothes off and sticking a crotch in people's faces. Well, essentially, that's what she is doing. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what she's doing. <laughs> and then there's a discussion in the book about the obscenity laws in the city. Listed as Article 235. I checked the New York law, Article 235, obscenity laws. So he's lifted that directly. Yep. And it's not much different now, it seems, to hmm. what it was in 1979. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a good bit in the squad room with Corella and Maya, and Maya's like, well, if I have to share this job of going out and interviewing the people, I want to, I don't want you to choose because I always <laughs> end up getting the drawing the short straw and having to go off for miles to interview someone. So flip a coin, but not one that you've got in your pocket. I want someone else's coin. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. And they flip the coin and rolling across the squad room floor. <laughs> and then Maya's like, yes, got the sh- got the one where I don't have to travel very far. Mm. Gets there, find out the guy's in jail and he has to drive for miles and miles <laughs> later on. <laughs> Just can't win. He really can't. And then we start getting these interruptions into the story from another location, which is an island. Well, you've already given all that away, haven't you? Any yeah. Fable, yeah. So someone who's trapped on an island. And what I think is very good in this book is the way he keeps adding an extra piece of information every time we cut back to the island. Yeah. So we know this guy's trapped by a woman who's holding him on this island. Well, it's probably worth mentioning first that uh, when they're interviewing the bandmates about the disappearance, he disappeared the night that they were doing this gig, yes. didn't he? And one of them remembered him dancing with some uh, a woman at this gig. Yes. And then that was the last time he'd seen him, and it was his theory that he'd gone off with this woman. Yeah. But then he said, oh, she, what did she look like? And he was like, I don't know, she's wearing a mask. And they just think, oh, this guy's just full of nonsense. And therefore, when you get to this island, um, it all suddenly <laughs> makes sense that he, he he wasn't talking nonsense after all. And 
yeah. something very odd there is happened. there's grains of truth in there isn't there yes. and he did go off with a woman but we get yeah so we get these little snippets from the island as we as each one comes along we get a bit more and it, it gets a bit more horrific each time mm. that he cuts back to the island talk this guy starts talking because this woman basically has kept him locked up as a sex slave but each time it goes along there's another you get another glimpse of torture. Yeah. Oh, and that's it's yeah. It gets it's creepier and creepier. Really creepy. And scarier and scarier as well. And she's got this big Alsatian because <laughs> he's scared of dogs. He must be bloody scared of dogs, that guy, <laughs> right? Because you think it'd be so easy to escape that island if only you were if he would confront Clarence the dog. Yeah. But he's so scared of the dog that he don't, and therefore... Well, he's basically broken, isn't he, after so long? Yeah, Broken and drugged and... Yeah, we kind of gradually find out about some fairly good attempt at making an escape that he's made. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's true. And he pays the price for it. Oh, does he ever? Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of blue language in those passages, isn't there? Well, this is worth talking about, isn't it? Out of all of the books we've read, and he's not shied away from... Sex as a subject of swearing. We've mm. talked about how s- some books, these non 87th precinct books I mentioned, he'll use stronger language in other areas. This is one where he's moved it right forward into like just a bit the sex content Oof. or the lang- the sexual Oof. sexual swear words. You won't be lending this one to your your grandma, would you? No, no. <laughs> Read this grandma. <laughs> it's yeah. It's it really ramps it up here. To get the the shocker across, it's certainly um, one of those books that if somebody you know frequently said which one would you suggest to somebody to read as the first, it, it, this wouldn't be anywhere near the top of your list because it's quite a bit strong. Stuff. It, it, well, as we said at the beginning, it's it's slightly unusual in that respect. It's, it's a, a little atypical, uh, and therefore you could be left with a bit of a slightly misunderstood impression if you thought they were all like this <laughs> yeah. yeah so as the plot rumbles along there's this talk about the the gig that you mentioned that was the last sighting of santo chatterton who was the name of the brother of the guy who was shot and they only have this thing to go on that this woman was blonde and then they find out that the gig was a charity event called a blondie ball <laughs> where everyone was in costume <laughs> as a cartoon character who has blonde hair you ever heard of Blondie and Dagwood, the cartoon? I think I'd heard I've, of it. I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever even seen a picture. Well, that's but... I'm showing the, the the chaps here a picture of Blond uh, Dagwood and Blondie. Okay. So everyone was dressed basically like these two. I assume very well known cartoon characters from the period. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think they've probably been in newspapers for ages, a bit mm. like Nancy and things like that. Yeah. So that doesn't help. They keep coming into dead ends with things because stories don't match up. They can't quite get enough information. If they get the information, it turns out not to be useful. It gets quite twisty-turny, though, in, in what they look look up because you then they then have to try and pursue, find out who the pimp was for the prostitute who was killed. And that takes a lot of hmm. doing, a lot of legwork, that one. Yeah. They somehow manage to find... Yeah, they call in all the stool pigeons, don't they? Yeah, but only the gaucho is yeah. of any use. Our yeah. new friend, the gaucho, yes. cowboy. Yes, there's a lot of yeah. Aside from like the bits on the island, it is a bit of a still a bit of a classic in terms of a lot of legwork, dead ends. Um, but uh, it's a fairly linear, single 
plot book, yes. though, isn't mm. it? That's right. Yeah. You know, it's for, for unlike many of them where they might have two or three kind of you know some subplots on the mm. go. This this yeah. has none of that really. It's just very. We go here, we go there, we go back there. Yeah. You know. One of the places they have to go is they discover that there's probably a link between King George, George Chatterton, and the murdered hooker CJ because they were going to make a record together for a vanity record label, which yeah. is an amazing slice of, of mm. the recording industry played out here. Yeah, that was a bit, an interesting uh, little sort of window into, into all that. Because they figure that because she's saving up loads of money and she tells... Does she tell her mother that she's going to make a record? Or she yeah. tells her, yeah. yeah. And then the, her initials are in King George's appointment book, and so they yeah. figure that... Yeah. So that, there's a lot that, of weird things the about the yeah, the relationships and the connections. Then we find out that CJ has been making this money by going out for special parties that a pimp doesn't know about somewhere on, on a beach. There's there's stuff like we find sand in an apartment mm-hmm. that the lab techs do, and that's a bit unusual in the middle of a city. Well, they find that in the apartment of the uh, manager who eventually... Uh... He gets well. He's spooked because somebody sent him a um, an orchid, an orchid that's, that's named right. the Calypso orchid or something. Yes, it is. Yeah, and he thinks it's poison, so they go and get tested. And but before they can put the police protection on him, he's shot as well. Carella makes a few sort of yeah. missteps in this book because, mm. like at the start, he upsets the widow in his interrogation. He's really clumsy mm. with the way it works. And then this, he, he waits to arrange the protection for mm. Ambrose Harding. Even though that, that Ambrose guy is re- a really good, uh, good character. Mm. Um, yeah, and he's like petrified, isn't he? He's absolutely convinced that somebody's after him. Um, and so, yeah, they find a p- sand in that apartment, don't they? Yeah. And then that's echoed by somebody saying... I can't remember. Somebody mentions that the CJ was going out to an island... As one of these jobs on the side, yeah, that was using the money for a record deal, so that's where it's slightly the clues start aligning. Yes, sand islands. They still still don't know who to. I like the idea though that uh, Corella goes to this vanity record label and hates the guy who runs it. Who's like, oh, you've come about ticketing my car, and he's like, no, that's not what it is. But he <laughs> just hates him so much. He then <laughs> makes a specific job of going to arrange to get his car ticketed. Yeah. <laughs> so he's wasting time, essentially, in this investigation because he just didn't like a guy. Yeah. I'm trying to work out... There is a scene at home with Corella, which we haven't had for a while, hmm. where he's actually in bed with, with Teddy, oh, and yeah. Teddy wakes up upset because she thinks that Kling's new wife, Augusta, doesn't like her. So there's a weird little domestic scene in the middle of this where there's very little else domestic in this book at all for anyone else in the, oh. in the story. But it's, we're reminded that he's still got a home life anyway, which we haven't really had for a bit. Nope. And we're going to have to skip through a little bit. To, certainly to following up on this pimp takes him into the 83rd precinct and Fat Ollie, mm. whoa, who I'd forgotten was in this book, <laughs> crops up towards the end. And Fat Ollie is brilliant because unlike Corella, who's been sort of actually not the most proactive he can mm. be, he's been pretty good. But Fat Ollie's like, oh, you want to find this guy? Well, we'll go and see this other guy. Yeah. We'll beat him up until he tells us where this other guy is. Well, he just kicks his door in, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a bit in this as well. I can't remember where it, uh, whether it's 
touching on reality where Corella and Maya are a bit suspect about doing something and they're a bit apprehensive. And he, he says about 14 cops being arrested for uh, in some other precinct for selling drugs that was confiscated in raids or something. Well, that doesn't sound that, too dissimilar from the, the world of Serpico and, and all that, yeah, that side so, stuff. So you just wonder whether that's just totally based on reality and, yeah... Like something that was happening at that time, and it certainly had been in the news in the seventies. Anyway, yeah. the corruption oh. in the New York Police. Yeah, so so I think that's a, a fairly realistic thing to drop in there. Yeah. So we get a bit of fat Ollie business, which is great. We get a good bit of history of these islands around the city as well. Mm. So there's a bit more world building going on, which led me into trying to figure out what the reality of this was. Mm. So are there islands with private houses on around New York? And it's set as an, on an island off Sand Spit, which is the equivalent of Long Island yeah. in the real world. And yes, there's tons. Yeah. There's a couple of very real examples of islands with like one private house on them. Are they as creepy as this one? Well, Let's I couldn't find it. I couldn't find an exact equivalent, but there's like one called Little P Island, P E A, <laughs> which used to be called Columbia Island, which has got like one house on it. it used to have, and it was owned by some celebrities in the '60s, mm. and then was given over to. A college, and it would have been a place with a TV transmitter on it once, hmm. which is a bit weird because it's just an island with a house and a jetty <laughs> in the Long Island Sound, I think. Probably the type of thing that sounds a lot better than they are in reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's tons of, of little island groups in like the Long Island Sound hmm. and around actually Long Island itself in the other bit of it, the other side of it. So it is realistic in that sense. I, there's one, well, there's a couple of islands, one called Great Gull Island and one called Little Gull Island, which oh. I think might have been a bit of an influence here because yeah. one of them's got a fort on it. Yeah, isn't this called Great Kent and Little Kent or yeah. something? Yeah. So I think yeah. he's, he's used a few different bits and pieces of influence. Well, they get the name of the island from the address because they eventually track down the, the pimp, don't they? Yeah, and then they find... They find her, no, they go to her flat and find her address book, don't they? Well, they find her... her tame- appointment book. Tain time table, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Train timetable yes. and a phone number. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. And it all, uh, as with several of these books, it suddenly all happens at the end, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. literally have them being taken out, Corella and Maya being taken out to this place that's registered to this phone number. We don't even get a scene with Corella arguing about finding out the address mm. on the phone, yeah, which, which we often get. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they get there, and this woman says, No, you can't come in. And as they leave, they hear a scream, and then all hell breaks loose. Yes. And you have one of the most disturbing endings of any 87th Precinct book. Well, just before that, though, you do find out that she's slaughtered the dog, though, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So you know she's kind of going totally and utterly falling apart. Well, the list... She starts mistaking the brother for her husband. Yeah, so you start to get a clue about what's actually happening. You've got so many victims in this book. You've got George Chatterton, the first victim, his manager, Ambrose Harding, eventually... Uh, Clara Jean Hawkins, CJ the prostitute, and a locksmith called Wilbur Matthews, yeah. who'd done some work in her house, and the dog as well. Yeah, well, she thinks the dog's going to tell on her, doesn't she? So she shoots it. Yeah, and then the ultimate victim is Santo Chatterton, the brother. Yeah, who uh, who is alive until hours before they get there. Probably. Yeah, well, like he's alive it. when they get there. Yeah, he dies just after they've arrived. But it's horrible because, like, there's one the sequence before that where you find out like she's been cutting his fingers off, and the sequence before that you find out she drugs him. She does something unspeakable with needles. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Oof. It's not good. And then it is. I'm, we've we've warned about the spoilers. The, the most grotesque ending is he's flayed alive. Huh. 
she skinned him, which is just like for a McBain is this. He's suddenly just gone, he's ratcheted it up, hasn't he? In the yeah. horror, like you were saying, it is. It kind of takes a left turn more into kind of Stephen King territory, almost. I think really, it's more like edging towards misery, or well, it's before misery, isn't it? I think, yeah. but uh, that kind of territory almost well Stephen King's definitely writing around this time oh yeah, absolutely like, yeah it'd be, it'd be uh... Dead Zone or something like that is that one of his yeah uh, from this period and obviously Stephen King loves the next book in the 87th Precinct sequence which I will talk about just before we finish I suppose having got to this end point we need to sort of sum up and have our final thoughts about it because because mm. we're getting on somewhat here and people will be disgusted with the thought of <laughs> flayed calypso percussionists <laughs> So I think for for summing up, really, let me just check my little list in here. Oh, the second to the last line in the book. Oh yeah, very interesting. So there's a nice Q and A like the that they do with the murderer at the end, as that's a classic eight seventh precinct thing. Second to last line in this book is Crellers at his desk, all the pieces in place, just like a phony fucking mystery novel. Mm. Very self-aware, really. It's <laughs> yeah. it's very interesting. As a new reader to this, I'm going to come to you, Morgan, for your th- final thoughts on the matter. Oh, and the score. Oh, and the score, of course. Can we have Kenneth? Oh, yeah, we Sorry, probably I'll, do with the... Well, I would say it's quite a difficult one to score. It's a tricky one, yeah. Because uh, it's so unusual. Mm. The, the, unus- the unusual ones are, are quite difficult to score. Yeah, it it is a bit of a kind of... A, a bit of an, an oddity within the series, but... I, you know, I quite like that. I like that, you know, this far in, he's still not resting on his laurels. He's still experimenting with what he can do within that framework, which I think is always good to see. You know, I, I don't think it's ever going to be, like, in my top rank of these, but it's a very interesting and enjoyable um, diversion from the norm, if somewhat unsettling, as we've mm. discussed. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to go in... With a respectable, um, let's say, 70 police shields. 70 police shields. Go for it, Steve-O. Yeah, well, I'll just rattle uh, uh, rattle on. Rattle. No, I won't rattle. I'm going to do the rattle, opposite of rattle rattling if you feel on like rattling. by just giving a score. And I, yeah, I'm, I concur with a lot of what Morgan says. I'll, I'll go 70 as well. Ooh, yeah. 70. I, I, think it's, I think there's certain elements that work a bit better than others. But anyway, I said I wasn't going to rattle on, didn't I? <laughs> well, I too will have, uh, try to avoid rattling on. I think, <laughs> as I say, having done a bit on. of research into Calypso and, and finding it to be a bit... The, the ring of truth in the book is more than I actually believed oh. originally, which I appreciate. It's nice to know that he's done his research. It's nice to know. And when it suddenly occurred to me about the fact that this is about protest music that is one of his cornerstones of the book and he chose to do this rather than punk hmm. I think that's quite a bold thing Yeah. so that's really interesting I think I'm going to jump up a tiny bit but only probably as far as 72 police shields So 70 you don't need to divided by 3 says Kenneth <laughs> and gives us 94 amazing <laughs> the ones of mathematics <laughs> Kenneth's broken patented rounding down system Steve is of course right it is 70 police shields he can do maths a lot better than me or Kenneth, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Kenneth. 70 Police Shields. I'll give you a quick rundown of some re- reviews of this. Oh, yeah. From the period. The New York Times, it is not Newgate Calendar. In the New New York Times, it's reviewed by Julian Simmons, and it's quite a long, like, mm. three or four column review oh, okay. of, of the series and the book. 
as well. And Julian Simmons says, The 87th Precinct stories also offer the pleasure of much crisp, credible dialogue that is never too smart for its own good or our enjoyment. And some alert observations about the contemporary scene. Calypso exemplifies these aspects of the saga. It's fair enough. It's yep. The writing, the dialogue is always one of the things that keeps yeah. you coming back to these books. Definitely. Yeah. He says, the plot has improbabilities that put it in the second class of 87th Precinct books, but the narrative grip and storytelling zest are still there. Hmm. I think that's exactly that's, what, uh, what we've uh, yeah, that's kind of how I feel with about that. It, yeah. There was an article in The Observer by Tom Dennis in uh, May of 79, which was written as a hard-boiled pastiche about McBain being in the UK to publicise a book, hmm. but it's crap. <laughs> okay. It just doesn't tell you anything. But in the actual crime ration review in The Observer by Ian Hamilton, he says, a middling McBain, i.e. don't miss it. (laughs) Okay. He's a bit more on a critical upswing here with this one, isn't he? Yeah. The Times says, it's HRF Keating in The Times. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Said, McBain's books had things to pray... McBain... Oh, blimey. (laughs) Blah, 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 bleeps. (laughs) McBain's book has things to praise in it, lifelike dialogue, economical storytelling, vividly sketched people and locales, humour and warmth. There's not much warmth in this, but, um, you know. And the Kirkus said, this 87th Precinct case is terrific in all the usual Ed McBain ways, superb dialogue, see that's come up quite a few times, brooding city atmosphere, gritty police procedure, but the whole shebang is unfortunately premised this time on a lurid, far-fetched, psychosexual setup. That grotesquerie makes this case second best to such as McBain's last one, Long Time No See, but even with an off-the-wall climax, McBain is still one of the best on the spot. So, absolute critical upswing on this, totally, compared to the past few years. Yeah, sounds fair enough. I mean, I I, I don't think the the more far-fetched bits of it really detracts from it. It's still, it's just, it's it's unusual for the series, and it feels like... I think there's a little bit of dissonance sometimes between the more kind of down-to-earth procedural bits and then the slightly more lurid bits, but it's it's still a cracking read. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, in terms of strange things in 87th Precinct books, we will be back in our next main episode to look at the next book in the series. What's that? Well, that's a book <laughs> called Ghosts. Oh, we've been looking forward to it. <laughs> Oh, Ghosts. Right, yeah. I'm going to find very interesting rereading mm, because a lot of people really love it and I seem to remember not. Maybe we'll all think it's amazing this time. Maybe. If only I could get Stephen King to give me a quote about it because he loves this book or that book rather. Mm-hmm. Let's gang up on him. Yeah. See how that works. So until next time, I'm going to sign off. Join us in the bonus episode for more rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> basically so I'm going to say goodbye 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 fairly well